Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to everyone listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Well-Read Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bierke, aka The Real Bookish Writer. I am a reader, writer, bookseller, book festival goer, and I am and always have been obsessed with genre fiction. While you're here, there will be two segments, a short one where I review the books I've read for the past week, and then a longer one which will consist of a one-on-one author interview. This is a very special week because this is the first time I will have not one, but two wonderful guests on my show. So make sure you listen to the whole thing because they are both absolutely amazing. Without further ado, let's jump right in. The first book I finished this week was The Breakup Tour by Emily Wibberly and Austin Sigmund Broca. A rising star musician has a second chance at love with an old flame she remembers all too well. Riley Wynn went from a promising singer-songwriter to a superstar overnight thanks to her breakup song concept album and its unforgettable lead single. When Riley's ex-husband claims the hit song is about him, she does something she hasn't done in 10 years and calls Max Harcourt, her college boyfriend and the real inspiration for the song of the summer. Max hasn't spoken to Riley since the relationship ended. He's content with managing the retirement home his family owns, but it's not the life he dreamed of filled with music. When Riley asks him to go on tour as her songwriting muse, he agrees on one condition. He'll join her in her band on tour. As they perform across the country, Max and Riley start to realize that while they hit some wrong notes in the past, their future could hold incredible things, and their rekindled relationship will either last forever or go down in flames. This book was such a great sentimental second chance romance. Emily and Austin weave such an emotional, sweet, and beautiful story. It's angsty and wonderfully written, and I loved the song lyrics sprinkled throughout the story. It's very much Taylor Swift meets Daisy Jones and the Six Fives, and I loved it, just like I do anything Emily and Austin write. The second book I read was For You and No One Else by Ronnie Lauren. Eliza Catalano has the perfect life, so what if it actually looks nothing like the story she tells online? As a therapist, it's part of her job to look like she has all the answers, right? But when Eliza ends up as a viral worst date ever meme, everything in her Instagram filtered world begins to crumble. Enter the most obnoxiously attractive man she's ever met and a bet she can't resist. If she swears off social media for six months, Bet Carter will teach her the wonders of surviving the real world. No technology, no dating apps, no pretty filters, no BS. It seems like the perfect deal. She can lay low until her sudden infamy passes, meet some interesting new people, and maybe even curate this experience into a How I Quit the Online Dating Racket book along the way. But something about Beck's raw honesty speaks to Eliza in ways she never expected. She knows he's supposed to be completely hands-off, but as complex feelings grow and walls come tumbling down, rough around the edges Beck may be exactly what Eliza needs to finally truly face herself and decide who she really wants to be. This was my first Lauren book, and while this can absolutely be read as a standalone, it is technically the third in a series, and I can tell you I'm definitely going to be reading the others. The characters in this were real and raw with real problems. Mental health is prevalent in this book and handled very well in my opinion. The chemistry between Eliza and Beck was great, and it was a really good friends-to-lover story. I also really loved the sisterhood between Eliza and her two friends, Holland and Andy. The way they support each other was refreshing and good and just wonderful to see. I will say that I listened to this one on audiobook, and both of the narrators did a fantastic job. They really brought the characters to life, and it was a great way to to devour the book. So that's it for book reviews this week, so let's dive into our first author interview. Like I mentioned earlier, this week I have not one, but two absolutely amazing guests. And our first guest is the author of Together We Burn, 
Reclaim the Stars, Woven in Moonlight, and Written in Starlight, which was a finalist for the William C. Morris Award and is listed among Time Magazine's 100 Best Fantasy Books of All Time. And as of today, What the River Knows, the Barnes & Noble YA Book Club pick for November. And if you're a writer, she also co-wrote the Storyteller's Workbook with Adrienne Young, which is a one-stop shop for planning, writing, and pitching your novel. Born and raised in Boca Raton and a proud daughter of Bolivian immigrants, she is an avid moviegoer, a giant word nerd, and has a profound appreciation for history and traveling. Please welcome Isabella Banez. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Isabel, for being here. I'm so freaking excited to talk to you because I'm absolutely absolutely obsessed with your new book and I'm so thankful that you decided to join me I really really appreciate it so welcome 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 thank you so much thank you for having me and thank you for thinking of me absolutely I always knew when I started the podcast that I wanted to have you on at some point but Um, when I launched it I was like I think it's too close to her release and I just I don't know if I can get her in and then I read the book and I was like I I gotta try I have to try because I'm like I said completely and utterly obsessed with this book but oh well thanks First question, why did you want to become a writer? I am a huge fan of stories. I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, Even when you ask me a basic question, like, what did you get at the grocery store? There's a story involved. Somehow I can't just say, oh, you know, I went for the oat milk. There's always some kind of, oh my gosh, well, I was driving, da 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 and all this. And so I don't know. It's, I think it's the way that I communicate with everyone. I think that there's um, the lens that I view life in. I think we're all just part of the story. And I've, uh, I've truly, I'm also that <laughs> weird person who will be watching a movie with someone, but then every now and again, I will sneak over and just kind of glance at the person I'm watching the movie with to see their reaction. Because I, I like what story does, the emotions that elicits, the inspiration that can happen, um, the sense of, oh my goodness, are you watching what I'm watching? Or are you reading what I'm reading? Those like me too moments where they, where they're so impactful. I just love that a story can be a vehicle for so many emotions. Why did you pick fantasy specifically and young adult fantasy? Sure. Um, One, I love young adult because there, it is such a hopeful time. I very much remember being a teenager. It doesn't feel that long ago to me, even though it was a long time ago. Um, and I remember the the yearning. I remember the going out into the world and, and kind of testing out my edges and realizing I didn't, I wasn't defined yet. I still had so much life to experience and things to learn. And that, that really excited me. And writing as an adult, you're getting to explore all these new things, these firsts. And it's such a formative time too. You're asking hard questions, you're drawing up lines, you're wondering what lines you would cross, what you wouldn't, you know, there are all these emotions that come with being a young adult. You're kind of being tested for the first time too. Um, and I don't know, there's something very hopeful, inspiring about that, that season of life. And yeah, I think that's why for sure young adult has always felt kind of a draw to me. And then fantasy, um, I think it's, I, I really think it's just the what if, right? It's the, what if this was different? What if this was possible? What if this actually existed? And, you know, I think I think life is beautiful and miraculous and all of the things it's messy and, and hard and wonderful and joyful. But then when you add in magic, it adds in this kind of mysterious je ne sais quoi something uh, to life. And I like, and I like dreaming about that stuff and bringing that, bringing that into my work. The what if. 
with your fantasy, you've written books that take place in your own worlds, you know, that you've completely created that obviously yeah. have influences from, you know, real life, but it's a completely, it's a complete fantasy, you know, it's a world right. you've totally created. And then you've yeah. written books where it's inspired, you know, by our actual world, like in what the river knows, which is your one that's out in just a couple of days, which is the one yeah. I'm totally <laughs> obsessed with. <laughs> that one is grounded in reality with fantastical yeah. elements. What has been the biggest, I guess the hardest thing going between those two because they're obviously I feel like kind of different writing processes you know one yeah. you completely make up you don't have to follow any rules and then the other one sure. there are you know some more rules that you have to kind of follow yeah um I don't know though I do think that no matter what I, there are some rules that you follow because I I think fantastical worlds they're inspired by someplace some some time uh no matter the creative angle that you bring in, you bring in something of your life, your experience or what you know into it. So there are some things that I think you're mindful of while creating a fantastical world. But um, I, I, the other component too, it's an interesting question. I think that all of my books feel old world to me, but moving to an actual country that exists in our time and place, in our reality was a shift. Suddenly, even though I have our I have artistic license. I still wanted to pay attention to the political landscape. I still wanted to research heavily the culture, people, food, everything, because, because it is a historical. And despite it being a fantasy, I think imparting those details, give it a set, give a realness to the story, uh, grounding the reader. And hopefully I think it would, it would inspire a reader to, to maybe look up that time period, to learn more about it, to be acquainted with uh, with a, a very fraught time in Egypt's history, you know? So it was definitely a shift. I did a lot of research and it was so much fun, a, a, truly a dream come true. Um, I had a lot, I had a lot of fun, probably too much fun. I could, I can absolutely procrastinate in, in the research compart, uh, you know, development, but yeah, I think that would be the biggest thing is that I was very mindful that the details that I was coming up with, even though um, a fantasy world, you do come up with these details when you're writing something actually set in a in a in a real country. Um, I wanted to get those details right. And yeah. that was going to kind of be my next question is about the research, because sure. what the river knows is grounded in real life. It's grounded in yeah. ancient Egypt, you know, and all these characters like Cleopatra you know, these different temples and stuff. Oswan, is mm -hmm. it Oswan? Did I say yeah, that right? Oswan. Okay. Yeah, I can never Oswan. remember if yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, um, what kind of research did you do and what from real life did you take and put into your books? And then what were you able to kind of have, you know, you were able to kind of do what you wanted? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the research that I did, I, um, <laughs> I started with books. That was the first thing. And then I moved on to podcasts. Then I moved on to lectures that I could find online from different universities. And um, I actually enjoyed looking at different syllabuses to see what they were reading. And then if I could, I'd, I'd pick up the book. I'd read the section that that pertained to where, you know, the time and place of the story. And then from there, um, I thought, man, I don't think that this is enough. This is not enough. Um, so I reached out to a classicist and personally hired a classicist to read through the work. And then I reached out to an Egyptologist who has a show on National Geographic. So I was super intimidated. Whoa. 
Yeah, I was super. It's on Disney Plus if you want to look at it. His name's Doctor Chris. Totally Christina. going to. Um, anyway, I, I reached out to him super intimidated. I was like, do you, you know, do you have time in your, in your schedule? If you could read this book and let me know what I got wrong. Um, and he did, and it was so great. And then the other component of that, I, um, actually my husband and I traveled to Egypt and we were there for three weeks and we, we did it all. We did everything. It was, um, truly a trip of a lifetime. I've always wanted to go. And uh, I picked hotels that as much as I could, I picked hotels that existed in that time period. I ate the same foods. I walked the same paths. Um, we sailed on the Nile in a Dahabia, just like Inez does, and, you know, with no motor. Um, and that was wonderful. We spent nearly a week on the water and, and wow. I truly, it was an incredible experience. We went all the way up to Aswan and yeah. So I also, while in Egypt, you know, you, you get a sense of the place, the people, the, the warmth of their hospitality, the different foods, you get to try it. And it was so, um, it was so inspiring. And then I worked also with an Egyptian Egyptologist and he gave me so much information and man, I, from as much as it was up to me and as much as I could, I wanted to immerse myself, um, so that I can get those details right because they really are important. Um, and then from there, I guess, you know, to answer the second part of your question, I had all this information and not all of it got into the novel. Otherwise, I think it would have been 200,000 words. And already my editor was like, you have got to shorten this book. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you need to shorten this book. It really could have been longer. I, I think at one point it was. Um, but you, at that point I had to choose what would Inez really encounter? What would she come across and, and really stick to those elements of the research that I had done to make sure that they were pertinent to the story so that they wouldn't mess with the pacing. And then the liberties that I took were little things like, um, oh, I don't know. I would move up some events years, you know, something might've happened a couple of years later. I moved that up to create tension. Um, so, oh, I, I. I was going to say something else, but that's a huge spoiler. So I cannot say that. Um, it's a spoiler for the sequel. So I cannot say that. Ooh. But there is, was a law that got passed. Um, dang. There was a law that got passed that would have changed Inez's circumstances. But I I, I just did it so that the law hadn't passed yet. Um, anyway, so there, that, that's where I took some artistic artistic license. And of course, I added magic, which, you know. That was a huge, huge creative, um, creative thing that I did. Well, and I can honestly say that you going to Egypt and you, you know, you immersing yourself in that really translates to the book itself. Oh. Because as someone, I've always loved ancient Egypt. The Mummy with Brendan Fraser is my all-time oh, favorite movie. Like I ever know. since I was a little kid, my mom was my mom loved ancient Egypt. I've always loved ancient Egypt, and reading your book. I honestly felt like I was there, like just the way that you were able to, I don't know, just describe certain things. And so I think like you kind of mentioned that comes from you having been there and having experienced it yourself. And it really does translate to the page. I do want to know what you did when yeah. you were in Egypt, because I want to know all the recommendations, you know, <laughs> where you went, what you recommend doing all that stuff. You know, um, we went to Cairo and that was the, the other element to this, um, to writing this story Egypt is of course it has its the monuments it has its temples and all of that but it's also it, it is also a bustling city with so much life and 
um, entrepreneurship and creativity. And so I, we went to Cairo and I got to, I don't know, I just got, I, we, we did so much exploring and, um, I got to know parts of the city, which were really beautiful. So you get to see beyond, right? The pyramids, you get to see life there, how people are living, breathing, you know, all this stuff. And then from, um, in Cairo, we did Luxar, which was just so cool because that was Karnak. Um, and then we boarded the Dahabia and went to Aswan. And then the just what was the highlight of my trip, because most of the setting takes place uh, in what the river knows takes place on this little island. It's we went to Philae and that was that was just so cool. And you get why they call it the jewel of the Nile. It just is you have to kind of see it to believe it. Just this, this, this island in the in the Nile, it's kind of surrounded by all this all this rock and and then the temple just kind of looms up ahead of you as you draw closer. So it was truly beautiful. Was that your favorite thing? Like if you had to recommend one thing to do when you're in Egypt, would it be? Yeah. What? I mean, I, I mean, of course, seeing the pyramids, right. You, you see, you see you're standing in front of them and you can see how, how immortal they are. They're going to outlive you and everybody that you know, um, in the next generation, the next generation, most probably, but yeah, the other, I would say, um, oh, and if you have the ability to to sail in a, in, a, in the Dahabia, that was the way that most tourists traveled 150 years ago and getting to have that experience um, and moving very slowly, it's seeing place to place, seeing the landscape kind of unravel on either side of you, just beautiful. I would highly recommend that. That's so freaking cool. That's That's got to be like a once in a lifetime trip. That sounds so yeah. Although amazing. I want to go back. I absolutely want to go back because the museum hadn't opened yet. Oh yeah. 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 You're just, oh no. You have to go back. Oh darn. That yeah. sounds terrible. <laughs> I, oh man. I would love to. I would love to. Yeah. So, one thing with what the river knows is it really transcends a specific genre. It's fantasy. It's romance. It's thriller. It's mystery. You know, it has all of these different twists and turns. It has betrayal. It has love. It's just, it has so many different things that come together so seamlessly. Was that something that you knew you wanted to try and do when you first started working? Or was that something that just happened naturally as the story progressed? I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And I just put all of my favorite things in the story. I grew up reading Agatha Christie on my 11th birthday. My mom gave me a biography of hers and it was, I devoured it. I loved it. And so there's something very um, classic about the mysteries that she writes and they're very, uh, they take t twists and turns and, and she's very sparse with her dialogue, but she has a, she has a wonderful way of unfolding a mystery. So I wanted something like that, that felt old, like that felt vintage, that felt classic like that an old school mystery. Um, and I also, I, I, <laughs> I love adventure stories. I love, um, I read, a, I read a lot of thriller mystery. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tana French, for example. And so I don't know if I went in thinking I'm going to bend genres with this. I just, I put in everything that I love in a book and kind of try to see where it would take me. And I, and I never thought of, oh man, how am I going to fit this specific thing, this specific thing? If it worked for the story, awesome. If it didn't, it was dead to me. It was gone, you know? So um, that was the other thing too, was just kind of juggling these different parts and having, trying very hard not to have one overtake the other. So it was a balancing act for sure. Well, you do it very well. I must say, <laughs> this book is amazing. Thank where did, you. 
where did the idea for what the river knows come you know where did it come from was it just one day it just popped in your head you're like oh you know maybe i'll write about ancient egypt or was there a specific thing that happened you know i'm when i was a kid i wanted to be an egyptologist i was like seven and my parents had got me all these books on egypt and i so i I think the seed for this was planted a long time ago. My interest in appreciation and, and love, uh, like the fascination with Egypt. And later when I, in adulthood, I, if I, if I was lucky enough to be able to write and, and to do this for a living, I knew that I was always going to set a book in Egypt. I just didn't know how I didn't know when I didn't know. I just, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't have any of that put together, but then there was, um, Normally when I, when a, when an idea comes to me, when a story idea comes, it's always in the form of the world. And I always want to know or ask myself who would survive in this kind of situation? Who would survive in this world? How are they living? Um, and so I already knew I had Egypt in the back of my mind. And then I saw this young woman, she was, she was sailing on a boat. She was dressed in, you know, um, vintage garb. So I knew that it was, I knew that she was living in some time in the 18, 1800s and she was dressed all in black. And I knew instinctively that she was pretending to be a widow. And I knew that she was constricted somehow by the, by the, you know, the propriety, the, the boundaries that existed back then. And so I, I was just so fascinated by her and I wanted to know where she was going. That's, I love that. And one thing that's also very prevalent in your books is Latin representation, Latin American representation and, you know, Latin American culture like with Inez and her family. Why is it important to you to have that representation and that culture in your books? You know, um, Inez is Bolivian, Argentinian. Um, my Both my parents are Bolivian. And it's how I see the world. I mean, I grew up that way. I grew up in the culture. I grew up, my first language was Spanish. And so I don't know if there's a, a way to to parse that out of me. But in particular for this story, I was, um, I don't know, she, I knew that she was going to be a Latina. I knew that. And I had been doing a little bit of research and there was um, an, a prominent Egyptologist from Argentina. And his name was, I'm pretty sure, Ricardo Camino, Caminos. And so I thought, oh, there it is. Maybe she's related to this person in some way. And I ended up changing his name, but kept Ricardo. So that just felt, it just felt right. And then um, I landed on Argentina because I have a lot of family that lives in Argentina, in Cordoba. So I, I, I knew the country. I'd been there. I'd visited many, many times. And so I felt pretty confident and just kind of loved this idea of her being of, of two different worlds. And, and then she leaves to a, a, a new world and, and she gets to carry her life experience, her culture, and, and she brings that to Egypt. And she's able to see a lot through that lens already. And there, I don't know, there, it was just something that felt really right to me about doing it that way. And family is also very central to your books. Yes, always. And, you know, same thing. <laughs> Why is family so important in your books? Because it's very prevalent in this one and even in Together We Burn, yeah. uh, which I read, I reread recently. Why is that in those dynamics? those very complicated at times <laughs> dynamics. Why is that so important to you to have in your books as well? I don't know if this is true for everyone, but um, I come from a very large family. I have something like 27 first cousins. And with that, I have been witness to and have been a part of a lot of 
wonderful elements to family, but also hard elements to family. I've um, I have some families who have, have cut one side of the family completely off based off of an argument. I've had, you know, not to go into particulars, but I've just, I've just seen a lot of, a lot of different relationships, a lot of, uh, sadness and grief that comes with generational wounds. And also family can be such a large component of your life and they impact you in ways that you don't even know things that you've, uh, experienced as a kid we all know this but they they can carry into adulthood and you don't even know that you're carrying it until something happens and then oh oh my gosh everything comes to the surface I've I'm just really intrigued and um have always loved to examine those those familial bonds and I don't know there I and I think the other component of this honestly is whenever I'm writing I and and because I include so much family, you could bet that I am working through something. <laughs> I'm answering some question. I'm I'm I am trying to relive something, or I'm trying to let go of something, and and getting to even examine a a, a little narrow slice of that in my story has helped me either to move on or to or to realize oh I need to reach out to that person again or something you know. With that, how therapeutic is your writing? Cause obviously it's a job for you. You know, it's how you, it helps pay the bills. You know, it's this career that you have, but how much of yourself do you put into these books? You know, I've spoken with some authors where they're like, I really try not to put, you know, inherently you always put a little something in your books because it's, you sure. know, it's your words and your story that you're writing, but how much of yourself do you see in the characters that you write and just the stuff that's going on with you or that you've dealt with in the past, you know, how much of that is put into what your characters experience? There's always a little something. Um, I think the best example of this is in Together We Burn, for anyone listening who doesn't know, it's um, it's the story about a girl who is trying to save her home. And she's the daughter of a flamenco dancer and a dragonador, which is kind of like a matador, but it, except in this world, instead of bulls, there are dragons. And for me, that story was really inspired by uh, a family trip to Spain where we were visiting family and my cousins took me to a bullfight. And I'd never gone to a bullfight before. Um, I will never go back to a bullfight ever again. I did not have a good time. But I went with my cousins who are, who are Spaniards, who are Spanish. And I remember looking around and every seat was full. It was like a Friday night football game. And it's going to a bullfight, bullfighting is a 3000 year old tradition in Spain. And so I just remember sitting there and I was emotional, upset. And um, afterward, I kept thinking about this concept of tradition. And if there was a way that you can honor where you've been, but reimagine a tradition into something else and something new and conversations with family, with other Spaniards or this, the bullfighting is such a intrinsically cultural Spanish thing. So, so to attack it, especially as someone who is not from Spain is, you know, that's at, at the minimum it's rude. And so I, together we burn was just this process of hearing both sides of this argument told through a fantastical lens um, and I, I just wanted to, 
ask a question and I don't think that I came up with an answer. I came up with a, a story, but I, I for sure, for sure other people, especially people smarter than me or closer to the, closer to the, you know, to the argument would have something different to say, but I think it's important to at least ask the question. And so for that one, it was me going through something that I had felt deeply and being upset by it, wondering how to have a conversation respectfully and realizing it that I could, I could put some of that wrestling with Arturo, who is the love interest in Together We Burn and have his argument and then have another more traditional you know, he, he's, he's up against somebody who has more of a traditional view and, and see where it took me. So I think in every, in all of my books, I am processing something. I am asking a question. I am trying to work through an emotion or, or, or an observation that I've made. Because your books do deal with that, those observations and traditions and stuff. What kind of legacy do you want your books to leave for these future generations of writers and readers who are going to, you know, inhale your stories. Like if you could pick, you know, if you could say, this is what I want my legacy to be. This is what I want my books to be remembered for. What would it be? I mean, other than a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Other than a good time. Other, they are. Other, than a, other than a good time. I think that I would want the legacy to be that each of, each of my books kind of exists in this in between. And, um, I think I would I would hope that readers can see what it's like maybe to live in the in-between, in the gray, between two arguments, two points of view. Um, my hope, my hope is that with each story that I tell, um, that they readers see compromise, they see um, I don't know. I, I guess I guess each book, each each story that I tell tries to find a way forward, especially through conflict, which most books always have conflict, right? They, you do, it's the way that you create tension, but um, I guess, I, I guess the other component of that is that I ask questions, you know? I like that. One thing I did want to ask because hmm. first duology, it's a duology, you know, there's multiple books there uh together we burn it was a standalone and now what the river knows is going to be a series i don't know yes. if it's going to be a duology or a trilogy i can't remember it's the duology no duology trilogy. okay um <laughs> it'll be you're like no trilogy no. <laughs> it, it'll be a duology <laughs> yeah how is it transitioning back and forth between having multiple books where you can create these worlds and these stories versus you only get one book to tell the whole thing i mean is it is it a different process is it a little bit more freeing, but at the same time, is it harder to do a multiple book series? Um, I think personally, it's harder to do a standalone. And the reason being is that you put in all of this work, all of this thought, a magic system, characters, their arc, everything. And you have to, you do everything. And then, then the story's over, it's done. And then when you're, when you, when you sit down to write the next book, you're basically starting from zero again. A new world, getting to know new characters, what are their wounds, what kind of journey are they going to be going on? And yeah, and but with the duology, you have the luxury of being able to explore every nook and cranny of that world. You don't have to go back to the drawing board every single time for every little thing, down to clothing, what 
the buildings look like? What are they eating? All these different things. You, you have room to really sink in and not leave a place and, and make sure that you are telling the stories exactly as slowly as you want to tell it. But a, a standalone, you have a, let's say a time limit on what, on what you can impart. Very nice. I f- oh my goodness. I feel like writing a standalone would be so hard for me just because when I think of stories, there's just so much, you know what I mean? That I would want yeah. to tell. So anyone who can write a standalone, I am absolutely in awe with, cause I just, I can't do it myself. So let's transition to our rapid fire questions. The answers sure. I know mean need to be rapid. You can expand <laughs> on this as much as you want, but what is your favorite genre to read? I love to read anything historical, but the caveat here is I love to read different genres as long as there are people to ship. So I can read a murder mystery, a thriller, a romance, obviously. I can read a historical tome of a book as long as there are people to ship. To ship. I, I love it all. I, I really do devour different things, but I tend to gravitate to historical books. I really love to know where people have been, I think, where That's we cool. come from. Yeah. Okay. So without the next book and what the river knows doesn't count. Okay. But <laughs> if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? Romantic or anything? Anything. Yeah. Oh, although I'm a big romance reader, so I kind of want to know your romance trope as well. <laughs> I think that I would do... Um... I've done Forbidden, I've done Slow Burn, um, Rivals to Lovers, of course, which all of my books have on some level, gosh. Um, I haven't done, I haven't done like my, uh, the best friend, you know? I Mm -hmm. think that there's something, I think that there's something really tricky on how you get two people who know each other so well, who've already lived a ton of life together, to fall in love because essentially you're saying, how do you, how do you get these two characters to see each other for the first time in a different way? Because they've seen it all. So I, I think I've been intimidated by that one, but when it's done right, I swoon every single time, every time. And I'm not talking about unrequited, you know, that's different. I'm talking about best friends who essentially wake up to each other and what, what is the event that happens? What's the moment? What is the inciting incident? What would get you to look at somebody in a different way? Somebody that you've known your whole life that you already trust. As someone who, my boyfriend, we've been together. We just celebrated our 11 year anniversary and we were best friends for five years before we started dating. Wow! And wow. as someone who was best friends with the person that they are now with, I honestly can tell you it's not one thing. It's, you know, it's just, it's a bunch of little things, but I agree with you that it is so hard to get done right. Like truly, like you said, not unrequited, but like the true, you know, best friends to lovers storyline. But when it's done right, it's, it's, whew, it's absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think it's quite a feat to pull off. Truly. I do. Well, I think it, I think it's harder to do that than to write an enemies to lovers. I do. Yeah. And it's, it's harder. It's harder to get right. There's, but like you said, when they do get it right, it's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list this month? I am currently reading um, 
a project that Rebecca Ross is working on. Her and I she's are- your writing partner, right? Yeah. Or your critique partner? Yes, we're in the middle of a chapter swap as we're doing it. We have a particular process. So we're in the middle of doing that. So I'm reading that. It's wonderful, of course, as everything that she does, just mm-hmm. truly wonderful. But not uh not work related. I read Starling House, which was divine. Um, I finished that one and I'm still in that kind of fall aesthetic mood. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading Adrienne Young's um, June Fair, The Unmaking of June Fair. I'm reading that. So beautiful. So atmospheric. So that's what I'm enjoying right now. Very nice. What's next? Do you know what you want to read next? Are you a mood reader where it just kind of depends on how you're feeling? I'm a mood reader for sure. I, You know what I want to read? I want to read a killer romantic thriller. Do you have a re- recommendation? I don't because romance... Romance and fantasy are my main sure. things I read, but honestly, mm-hmm. most of the romance I read, they're rom-coms. Yeah. The other, I, I do read a lot of Laura Griffin. I think that's the author, Laura Griffin. I read a lot of Sandra Brown. Her newest stuff, are, they're, they tend to be a romantic thriller. Um, so maybe I'll check that out and see if she has a new one. Okay. Yeah. If you get a good recommendation, let me know. I will. I need to expand my romance horizon <laughs> a little <laughs> sure. bit. Sure. What is the most valuable piece of advice you've received in regards to your writing? I think, I, I, I think (laughs) I hate to say this because it sounds super trite, but uh, be yourself. (laughs) And um, I guess I, what I took that to mean was every story is going to be different. Every writer has a different approach to story. And um there is no one right way to write a book. It's going to get written in the way that is going to feel right to you. And for me, that's plotting heavily. It's research. It's, you know, what have you. Um, and I also, I, I write very, very quickly because I cannot stand drafting, but I love to revise. And um, so there, there, to me, it, approaching story the way that I would approach, you know, different other areas of my life and to not alter that too much. It's okay to, to, it's okay for your process to be different from somebody else's and to really embrace that because I think that's how your writing will personally shine. I love that. And I'm not going to put this in the episode, but as someone who's currently working on their first manuscript, well, okay, it's not my first manuscript, but I, went back up my master's and I wrote a thesis, which is, has now transitioned into a book idea. I really appreciate advice like that because it's, it's hard to compare, you know, it's hard to compare yourself or not to compare yourself to other people. So I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. If you weren't an author, what do you think you would be doing for work? A travel guide. Yeah. What's the, (laughs) what's your most favorite place that you've ever been? Oh gosh. You had There's to pick so one. Many. I mean, we just talked about Egypt and that was, I mean, that was truly incredible. Um, I love to travel, but more than that, I love, I don't know what this is about me, but I, I really want everyone to have a good time, no matter who they are, where they are, what they're doing. I want people to be having a good time. So I will research restaurants, uh, what time the museum opens, where to go, what streets to walk, you know, to make sure that you're getting like the really, the most beautiful vistas of the city. Um, I love doing that. Nothing, for example, nothing stresses me out more than family from South America, from Bolivia. They are like, ah, Isabelita, we're coming to Disney. And 
I'm like, great. What's the plan? Have you made reservations? Have you done like all these? No, we're just going to go. And I'm like, what? You can't do that. You, I, I'm so stressed. Um, I was born in Florida. So <laughs> there is a way to do Disney that means that you will, you will, you will, um, I don't know how to say this. It's like out of Google. You will, um, you will do it right. There is a right way to do Disney. There is. That's all. <laughs> yes, there is a right way to do Disney. I know one who goes to Disneyland all the time I can 100% (laughs) confirm that there is a right way to do it yes I just I it breaks my heart when when people don't get to you know when especially family when they're coming all this way they miss something they don't get to do something the lines are too long they don't know about fast passes you know that kind of thing but yeah I would be a travel guide that's fantastic now if you can invite any person over for dinner dead or alive who would you invite and why well, I'm in the midst of editing the sequel right now, and it would have to be Cleopatra. That would be that would be a hell of a dinner party. I know. Can you imagine the conversations? The I would I I would just want to know. She was such a smart, brilliant strategist. I I would and and she was navigating tensions between empires and. At political adversaries I would I would just want to know how she did it you know I'd want to I'd want to know if she was scared doing it I I I'm sure that she was but yeah I would I would be fascinated that would and be the other thing incredible. Said, she spent so much time in the library of Alexandria so I would I would ask her like what does it look like what are you reading right now what parchment are you reading right now tell me about it I appreciate that I like that now if you could invite a fictional person over for dinner who would you invite it doesn't have to be one of your own characters. It can be anyone. Oh gosh. Who would I invite? Mm, man. TV or book? Oh Lord. Let's switch it up. Let's do TV. Because I usually Damien. do book, but I want to know TV. Damien. Nice. Excellent choice. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no. Where is a place you haven't visited on tour that you would like to, either domestically or internationally? Mm. I have never really explored the New England states, so I would like to do that. I would, I would like to do that. Um, and then internationally, I will be. I really want to go to Morocco. I don't know. <laughs> I've heard places. wonderful things about Morocco. Yeah, I would really want to go to Morocco. Very yeah. Nice. Okay. So, last question: What mm-hmm. currently brings you joy? That's a great question. That's I will have to admit, I stole that from Christina Lauren. I went to a signing a couple months ago and they asked yeah. that question. And I was like, I freaking love that question. It's such a good one. Yeah. Um, you know what? Rereading a comfort read brings me a lot of joy. It brings What's your me number one? What's your number one comfort read? Gosh, I knew that you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I had to. But the thing is, is that number one is so tough because I have so many. I have so many. Have you ever read Susanna Kearsley by any chance? I haven't. She has one called The Winter Sea and it's so beautiful and heartbreaking all at once. That one is a comfort read. Um, uh, Sherry Thomas is another comfort read of mine. I really love um, The Luckiest Lady in London. And I'm trying to think of, an oh gosh. I just reread this. And literally, it's right here on 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 my couch. Um, uprooted is another comfort read. Nice, good choice. Well, thank you, thank you so much, Isabel, for being on here. 
like I said, I'm just, I was so excited when I finished this book. I was just like, I have to ask her. I have to, even if she says no, I just, I have to ask. It's absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. I'm so, so freaking excited for the sequel. Um, But congratulations on your release. And I'm so excited for you. Thank you again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our second guest today is a USA Today bestselling romance author who writes books reflecting her belief that everyone deserves a love story. Her stories, which include the Bergman Brothers series, Two Wrongs Make a Right, and her newest release, Better Hate Than Never, the last two which are Shakespeare retellings, pack a punch of heat, heart, and humor, and often feature characters who are neurodivergent like herself. When not dreaming up her next book, she spends her time wandering in nature, playing soccer, and most happily at home with her family and mischievous cats. Please welcome Chloe Lease. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Chloe, for being here. I am so freaking excited to talk to you. This latest book of yours, I am completely obsessed with. It's one of the best books I think I've ever read. I've never felt so seen when it comes to certain things, and we'll get into that later. But welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so let's just start off straight from the top. Why did you want to become a writer? I don't know that I like wanted so much as just sort of found myself there. Like I, it wasn't like a big long-term goal of mine. I um, was in college and studying literature and I thought I might be uh, like a teacher. And then um, just life needs required me to just not go to grad school and instead get a job. And then I became a mom and I was balancing working part-time being a mom. And, um, I just fell in love with reading romance novels because they were so great for my anxiety. They were little boosts of serotonin and I had that guaranteed everything's going to work out the end that was really needed in my life at that time. And, um, I feel like I just stumbled upon deciding to write because I, kept reading these really swoony books, but they just felt, um, often, not always, I did find some books that had, you know, diverse representation and, um, you know, realistic human components to these characters, but it wasn't very often. And I just felt this increasing, like, just, I just, I was discouraged, um, because it felt like the implicit message in that these people who always had all this money and like, air quote perfect bodies and no problems and like the that the conflicts between them were were sort of external and like manufactured drama often instead of just like the realities of what a lot of us carry within ourselves that can be impediments to vulnerability and thus intimacy and and forming you know um fulfilling and safe emotionally safe romantic and otherwise relationships i just wanted to experience that more in in the romance genre and um, Toni Morrison, who as a literature major, I read a lot of and really admired as a writer and as a, a woman um, and just for her cultural presence and impact. She has this quote that I'm paraphrasing, I believe that it's something along the lines of if there's a book you want to read and you can't find it, you must be the one to write it. And again, I, I'm I'm not the only one doing this. Um, and I wasn't then when I started, but it wasn't very common and it was hard to find. And so the exact way I wanted to experience it wasn't something I was finding. And so that's how I just decided to take a crack at writing and um, take that step from being a reader to a writer. And and here we are. <laughs> now, before you had your contract with Berkeley, who's published your Wilmot Sisters series, and they are re-releasing uh, the Bergman Brothers series coming yep. up. 
uh, you were an independently published author. You did indie pub. So tell me about your indie journey and kind of how you transitioned into the traditional publishing aspect of it. And how, I mean, like, how do the two processes differ for those people who don't know, you know, what's kind of been the hardest part of transitioning? What's been the best part? Just tell me about your journey. Well, um, I didn't even try to start off my writing journey as a traditionally published author. Like I didn't, it didn't ever even cross my mind. And, and that probably speaks to the cynicism I felt about like the traditionally published market. It was just, I didn't see stories like that, that, um, had that kind of representation I was looking for in traditional. And I think I liked the idea of doing it on my own terms and tr not being curtailed in any way, just truly being able to tell the stories I wanted to tell in the way that I wanted to, and in the timeline that worked for me. Um, so, you know, I started um, self-publishing. I, I had published um, a series that I don't distribute anymore it's unpublished since but it was a very different subgenre it was like romantic suspense high heat um and those aren't out anymore so I did that in 2019 but then in 2020 I started the Bergmans and released the first one in the spring mm -hmm. and I just loved this big family and had this idea for a family saga where there was going to be a book for each sibling and their love interest. And we were going to get to just be in this world time and again, and see these characters evolve and spend time with this family and their friends and their found family. Um, and yeah, it just, it, it did well. Uh, people connected with it. And, um, you know, I really refined like my process of truly making sure that any representation outside of my lived experience was um, engaged um, and informed by the communities that I was representing, um, which wasn't something I, I knew about when I first started publishing the Bergman. So I'd reworked the first Bergman book. And from that point on, you know, worked with authenticity sources and readers, whether they were friends or um, people from the bookstagram community. So that was a really cool thing to connect with readers and um, romance lovers in that new way, making them a part of telling these stories so they could see themselves. And um, yeah, just kept growing. And then I got to the point where I started having foreign translation houses reaching out, um, wanting rights to translate my, my books. And I, uh, was not equipped to, uh, negotiate those kinds of contracts. So I just basically pitched myself to some agents who I admired their list and, um, thought they had, you know, proven themselves to be people who were advocates for diversity in publishing and inclusivity, and just, you know, overall, um, just people who cared about seeing publishing become the place that I wanted to be, which is a place that really uplifts and truly creates so much more space that is needed and deserved for um, marginalized authors and uh, marginalized and their voices giving us these stories that we need to diversify what we experience as readers and what gets uplifted by publishing. Um, so when I pitched myself to these agents, I also did tell them that, you know, hey, I have like a, a project I'm working on. And that was my first Wilmot sister book. It was in pandemic and I'd been just for fun and for escape from the world burning, um, taking this time in the evening to just chip away at this idea I had, which was to write a much ado retelling because um, I studied Shakespeare a lot growing up and saw a lot of live Shakespeare performed. And it was just a love of mine. I love the much ado film and I'd been watching it and I got this idea to do like a modern riff on it. So I pitched that to the agents and um, I ended up going with the agent who I have now, Sam, Samantha Fabian, who's at Root Literary. 
And she started selling my books for translation rights. And then we sold the Wilmot trilogy to Berkeley. And yeah, since the transition, I guess I would say has been honestly pretty, not as jarringly shocking to jump from indie to trout as I thought it would be. And I think maybe that is because um, my publisher you know, saw that I had an established brand and readership and a certain way of telling stories that was working for people. And instead of having big ideas about like trying to change that, they just wanted to, you know, uplift that and refine it for reaching hopefully even a wider readership. Um, so I don't know. I felt like it's great because the parts of indie publishing that were wearing on me and making it harder for me to just focus on my craft and my creativity, which is, you know, all the other things. Cause when you're indie, you have to do it all. You have to make your ads. You have to find someone to do advertising for you. You have to, to create all of your content. You have to set up all of the aspects of the document getting published as an ebook as an audiobook, as a paperback. Um, it's just so much administrative and logistical and marketing and publishing and publicity work. So I got to hand that off to a publisher and then focus more on my storytelling and um, connecting with readers and making time for things like, as you were saying, you know, uh, going on tour and 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 going to events and getting to to meet people and have that space to refill my cup in that way that um, allowed me to focus on people, which is why I write these stories for it's for people. So they get to see themselves and feel affirmed that, you know, everybody deserves a chance to see themselves in these love stories if they want to. And uh, yeah, so it's, it feel like, it felt like sort of an organic process. I chipped away at these stories. I connected with readers. I just kept trying to um, write stories that were close to my heart and um, that were true to what I valued. And I think I just got really lucky that I found an agent who wanted to support that and a publisher who wanted to uplift that too. So yeah, here I find myself. <laughs> now in all the books I've read, I can't obviously speak to the series that you were talking about. That's unpublished because I haven't read that one, yeah. but <laughs> with the Bergman ones that I've read and the Wilmot sisters, uh, I've read both of those representation in so many different forms is very prevalent in your book. Um, it's very important to the characters, each character, you know, they have their own thing going on. Why is it so important to you to have this representation in your books and every book that you've written that obviously I've, I've read and why, why is it so prominent in your books? I know you said a little bit that, you know, you want others to feel seen, but why is it important to you? Yeah. I mean, in part, it's because I am myself neurodivergent and I have chronic conditions and a lot of people that I love um, identify within those communities. It's just my reality and it's the reality of so many people I love. And, um, you know, just feeling that sort of, as I was saying earlier, that like discouragement and loneliness of like, I want to see real people like me and the people I love being desired and having witty banter and fun ensemble cast scenes and you know getting getting their own rom-com version of their life portrayed in art um I just you know I think like I said it when all of that representation is absent from a story I'm not saying authors who don't write any kinds of representation are saying this or are wanting people to have this as a takeaway 
what I am saying though, is I think when you're someone who identifies as disabled or chronically ill or neurodivergent, or just you're someone who's navigating a lot with your mental health or maybe past traumas or your relationships are in flux, or you are discovering your sexuality, or you are exploring your sexuality, um, or you are struggling to connect with your family, or you have been isolated from your family. All of these experiences that we can have that are complicated um, relationships with ourselves and that can make it feel harder to really feel fully known and connected to others. I think we need stories that remind us like that's okay <laughs> that's just being human and um and so why it matters to me to tell love stories um romances and the genre itself being one that focuses on and really centralizes relationships and how important they are why I want to write romances with that kind of human reality is because then I think when people pick up those books and see that it's this affirmation it's this hug it's this it's this reminder that like you always belong, you're always worthy of love. And like, you're going to go through tough seasons or you're going to struggle or you're going to be um, experiencing anxieties and unknowns, but that the people who are worthy of you and your love are going Sorry, to- I'm crying. <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Sorry. I get, I get emotional. I get like lump in my throat when I talk about this too, but like that the people who are worthy of your love and your time in your presence are going to love you in those moments. Now they might not always do it spectacularly and they might have questions and they might need you to guide them and inform them, but that's intimacy and that's vulnerability. And that gives us real, beautiful, loving, intimate relationships with the people who are our friends or our siblings or our lovers or, you know, are, it's like, I just want there to be stories out there that are saying you don't have to check off all these boxes to be desired or welcomed or seen or belong. And and romance just feels like such a powerful genre for, for affirming that. So it's that's why when you pick up one of my books, there's always something because th that's that's the truth for most of us. I mean, I think the statistic is like 60% of Americans have at least have one chronic illness and 40% have two or more. Um, and, you know, there's so much destigmatizing of mental health issues happening in our culture. Now, so many people are talking about being in therapy and exploring medication and navigating really complex family and sometimes traumatic dynamics. Like I just, I think we're waking up to a lot of these parts of human existence that our culture just told us for a long time you had to hide because then if you didn't hide it, you'd be ostracized or rejected or people would see you as broken and they wouldn't love you and you couldn't be loved for those things. But I I hope we're moving toward a place collectively as a society where we are more aware that pretty much everybody's got, got something inside themselves that they believe someone isn't going to love them for. And so I hope that even if someone picks up my book and they've got the healthiest body and the healthiest bank account and had a really, you know, emotionally functional and safe upbringing and has a great partnership, like if, if their life, even their life is sunshine and roses, they pick up my book, they are a human and they're going to have something about them that they secretly feel like they just can't be loved for, that they can't fully face or entrust to someone because then will they love me? Then will they want me? And so my hope is when they read my books, they will feel this affirmation of like, yeah, the right person will.
And it's scary to be brave sometimes. And it's scary to be vulnerable about that fear and that, that part of yourself that you're guarding, but it's such a beautiful bridge to deeper intimacy and connection and love in all sorts of ways, romantic. Yes. But also familial and platonic love with yourself, like, um, through self-care and therapy. So I just want to write stories that are really emotionally safe for people and affirm that you, we all deserve love. We deserve to love ourselves and we deserve to be surrounded by people who actually see who we are and love us for that. And, and people who let us love them that same way too. As someone who has struggled with mental health for years and years, at one point, you know, we got really, really bad. And as I'm getting older, I realize that I have anxiety. I have ADHD, you know, all of these things. There's truly something special about your books. Sorry, I'm going to start crying again. <laughs> I swear I don't do this all the time. I promise. But in your, especially in your latest book, uh, Better Hate Than Never, the one that just came out, yep. there were several scenes where um, the main character, she is talking about things that she has struggled with her whole life where she's never felt seen. Like one thing that uh, sticks out to me, I wish I had the quote with me, but uh, she's talking about how she gets when she has jobs and stuff, she feels stuck. Uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. if she's in a certain job for too long, she can feel stuck and she, you know, feels these things. And that's the first time in my entire life I have ever read something like that or realized that I'm not the only person who goes through that because mm -hmm. I personally I struggle staying in one job for too long if there's not some sort if there's not something that is different every day I can't do the same job day in yeah, and day out highly like dynamic it, yeah yeah I just I struggle with it and I don't last very long in those jobs because I get bored I, I get claustrophobic and I and I remember reading that and like I said, just going, oh my God, I'm not crazy. <laughs> like this is something that other people deal with and it's not like, there's not something wrong with me. Exactly. Um, and we met at a uh, steamy lit con this past August. And I remember, of course, I cried when I <laughs> talked to you then too, that, you know, I, I'm not on, I'm not autistic. I'm not on the spectrum, but I know several people who are and Bay and two wrongs make a right. She was so wonderfully written. And I don't know if I've ever seen a character like that who's on the spectrum written so well and so real. And like you said, where there's not there's nothing wrong with them. That's just who they are. You know what I mean? And they get to be loved for exactly who they are. Yeah. And being able to meet, I mean, being able to meet readers and see how their stories affect them has to be such a cool thing. And I mean, how does it feel knowing that your work has such an emotional impact on other people, you know, especially for people who read your books and are seen, who feel seen for the first time? It's a really, now I'm getting emotional, <laughs> a really big honor um, because yes, I want to continue to be able to do this as my job. And with that comes certain inherent pressures of this. I want to reach these sales goals and I want to reach these markets and these sales avenues, you know? So of course my, and often my brain is on, on my, my mind is on the deadline and the next to do and checking off this box. You know, there's, 
it's wild that something that began as like a passion has become a, a job where there are these aspects where I am so like numbed now by the familiarity of them that, you know, I have to, I really pull myself. I try to pull myself into a place of mindfulness. Um, and the, the place that I have to do the least work to be mindful of is this relationship to readers who feel seen. Like it is, it, it, it never fails to be emotionally impactful um, and touching to hear from people who have felt seen. Because I do remember those first few times, like when I read the Kiss Quotient and I recognized, you know, my neurodivergence or when I read Get a Life, Chloe Brown and saw my joint pain and like just that exhaustion and the fatigue of like feeling so out of control with your own body, even though you're trying so hard to take good care of it and do everything right. And it still backfires on you. Like I remember how it felt like my heart got bigger and like someone was just hugging me in a way that I needed to be hugged for a very long time when I read those stories. So, and Talia and Helen who wrote those books know because I emailed them and and sobbed in the, across the internet to them about how emotional and impactful that was. So I never take for granted. Um, it always means so much to hear from people who feel affirmed and seen. And, and with that comes just this constant reminder too of how important the work is on the front end of these stories to really do the work to write positive, authentic representation, especially when it's, you know, outside my lived experience and that, this gift I can give readers of allowing them to feel seen is also um, a responsibility that I take really seriously and has given me a gift of just connecting with such a wonderful community of people who um, have been such an integral part of telling stories that allow other people to feel seen. And it's really cool because I will often send like paraphrasings or, you know, uh, an anonymous um notes to these people who've been my authenticity sources like look this is this work you did with me allowed this person to feel seen in this way and it's really touching for them too so it's it feels like it it's it's a ripple effect it spreads a lot of goodness um even in this little corner of the the book world of my readership and I'm I'm very grateful for that now you already stated that you are neurodivergent and you are also on the autism spectrum but you didn't find this out until later in life and yeah. it had to do because of a book. Yeah. Uh, so I, I definitely want to ask about that. You know, how did you recognize that you were on the spectrum and what kind of led you to seek that formal diagnosis? Well, I was definitely um, dealing with a lot of facing my own mental health struggles at that point. You know, I was a, a mom to young kids at that point. And I chalked up my cumulative feelings of like depression and anxiety as just like young, young parent burnout. Um, but then I was starting and I was in therapy and talk therapy and I was working through a lot of stuff from my past and my relationship dynamic patterns and how I was starting to recognize just these gaps in between how I would explain how I handled relationships or how, um, like in my environment, like sensory stuff was affecting me and and the way my therapist was kind of following that up. And I feel like I was starting to get these clues of like, oh, maybe this isn't t typical. Like maybe that, and maybe this isn't situational. This is like me, this is innate to me. Um, and so that was sort of brewing in the back of my head, curiosity, but my therapist wasn't saying anything like, hey, I think you might be autistic, Chloe, or, you know, 
honestly, back then the term Asperger's was still being used, you know, because she's like, you know, you're, you're very bright, you're very functional, like, you know, we've definitely got some sensory things going on, right? So maybe that could be something, you know, I think she might have thrown that out there once. But so I was reading romance <laughs> voraciously at this point, and I'd started writing. Um, and I read the kiss quotient and there was just so many things about how Stella operated, um, especially the sensory things, especially the, the bluntness and like the, um, the direct communication, you know, and I really just saw so much of myself in Stella. And it was, it was an aha moment of like, oh wait, because, you know, this was clearly framed as Stella is different from other people. You know, Stella is, is othered in a way that she needs to be in the story for the reader to really understand how she sees herself and how she's trying to make sense of her life and her next chapter of her life. But it was just such, it was an eye-opener because it was like, oh, wait, this isn't something everybody deals with and doesn't talk about. Like, this is this is different. This is something. Um, and it was just so touching, though, even as I was sort of spiraling with a, oh, my God, really? This this could be, this is what it is? Um and I was sort of panicked by like what I didn't know and how much and and how my idea of what it meant to be autistic learning growing up and what I learned that was felt very different from what this was. But as I was reading through the book, it was just so touching and, and healing as I was exploring this possibility for me, which would then become a diagnostic reality to see it so lovingly and positively portrayed and and not that it shied away from the struggles because Stella has really tough moments in that book and people struggle with her and they don't always see her well or love her well and she can't always communicate herself well and she puts her foot in her mouth and she offends people sometimes and she hits her limits you know it's not it's not a fluffy version of neurodivergence it's a very real one um and yet it's still just so hopeful and loving and affirming and it made the world of difference from my first encounter with this concept this possibility for my self identification to be in such a compassionate context and i really took that with me into what i wanted to do when i wrote the stories that i did i was very inspired by that so with you becoming such a staple now in the romance community. You know, you have so many things going on. You know, you just got done with the tour, which I absolutely want to hear about. I want to hear how that went. But how do you manage, I guess, protecting your mental health when you do get busy? You know, when you have all these things going on, how mm. do you kind of take a step back and protect yourself, um, you know, positively? Well, I'll be honest and say that's something I'm figuring out as I go <laughs> along, you know, as I look back on, as we're winding down the year 2023, and I look back on what I did, I probably bit off more than I would ideally have been best benefited by chewing. <laughs> but I'm trying to have grace for myself as someone who, for a lot of my life, had a lot of rigidity. And that's definitely how I coped when I didn't understand my needs and how I worked, you know. I coped by being very um, rigid in parts of my life and then very over accommodating in others to the point that I was just often ignoring myself because I didn't really understand myself. I couldn't meet my own needs because I didn't understand or see my own needs. Um, so I, I am someone who's still struggling to have grace with myself that, and, but as I think I am getting better at being like, sometimes I just have to try something and I won't know if it was going to be a good fit for me or not until after I've done it. I have to allow for the possibility that this could epically burn me out, or I might have to step out of it halfway through, or 
I might love it way more than I thought I would. So just trying to keep myself open to that vulnerability of trying um, in spaces and in situations where I don't, where the unknown is, is very daunting and could be very costly for me, for my mental health or for my body. Um, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally I am trying to, um, be honest with my team, like my publishing team about my timelines and what is good for my health and all facets, my, my brain health, my body health. Um, I'm trying to read stories that are filling my cup that are stretching my mind that are engaging my empathy that are inspiring to me in terms of their craft and creativity um because I love to read and I really want to have time for that and then I also am trying to just make sure I have plenty of time away from my phone and the social media and the emails and just am present to my family and my partner and my my pets and in my the natural world just like going outside and like feeling the sun on my face and really looking at the color of the changing leaves and walking and just taking a stroll and breathing deeply and letting my mind water just little moments that with mindfulness can be very filling they can fill my cup and they can recharge me um but yeah it's it's a balance that i'm constantly learning and adjusting. And when my body feels really good, I, I feel like I can do more. And when it doesn't, I have to do less. And I just am continuing to do work in therapy and in my intimate relationships with like honesty about what I'm struggling with to, um, have, have grace for myself and not shame myself for when I have to do less because I need to do less. Um, you know, my therapist and my close circle are very rude and they're like, so wait, why do you write this really compassionate viewpoint towards someone like that as a character? But then when it's you, you're like, but I have to go do this thing and I have to finish this by then. And I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> We're always you're harder on ourselves. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I'm, I'm learning as I go, but um, I do recognize how important it is. And it's something I really want to model for my kids is self-care um especially after ambitious seasons and i'm recognizing that sometimes something can work for you in one season and it really doesn't another and sometimes it doesn't work for you in a season but you should open yourself up to it down the road and can give it another chance because maybe it will be at some point let's see how it goes how has your tour been because i know you went to several cities for better hate than never um you know how has this latest release been and how kind of was the tour well, it was a little baby tour. It was just a couple stops um, because that felt just enough for me for the time of year for what just seems like, you know, right in terms of I'd already been to the West Coast. I'd been to Anaheim in August. I was in Dallas and San Antonio in June and April, respectively. Um, and I was just like, that's enough big travel. So really what my hope was with better hate than never, which, you know, just released a couple Tuesdays ago, um, was just to spend a little bit of time, you know, being mindful and joyful about this book and, and making some space to connect with readers who have been excited to read it or who just honestly wanted to get a chance to talk and, and talk about my backlist and, and connect, so um, I just had the absolute delight of my dear friend, BK Borison came up from DC. She came to Pittsburgh and we did my launch event at the, my really wonderful local indie bookstore, White Whale. And we had just a great conversation because she's my friend and I admire her as a writer and as a person. 
And it's just so easy to talk with people you love and admire. And so we had a really great time. Um, and then I went down to Nashville to Parnassus Books. And that bookstore is just, they're so affirming of romance. They are so kind to me. They'd um, selected Two Wrongs Make a Right as their book club pick last year. And they were just, they were sweet. They had me on a Zoom chat with all the members, um, like in person in the store. So those cute people would like come up to the screen and ask a question. I got to like see them and talk and nice. they were just really sweet. And they were like, Hey, anytime you want to do an event, like let us know. And so my friend Sarah Adams lives down there and she said, Hey, whenever you want to do an event, we should do one at Parnassus. And I was like, let's do it. And she and I, again, just, she's a friend who I love and admire and enjoy just chatting with her and, um, just celebrating the the butterflies and the and the fun of romance and she's just such a joyful person so we had a really great conversation there too and a really uh solid showing from our readers and a great conversation in the in the question and answer time with them and yeah and then i went up to i'm so excited we have a romance only bookstore now on the east coast and brooklyn the rip bodice this is their second store their flagship stores in culver city and um, I was really happy to get to be in conversation with Nisha Sharma, who she's just such an incredibly talented and um, just deserving of her success um, writer. She's writing Daisy retellings, like Shakespeare retellings. And so it was like, let's just have a fun conversation where we both talk about how much we love to put these um, diverse and inclusive spins on a cl classic tales. And we had a great time and had another great showing at the bookstore. And, uh, it was just, it was really good. It was just a lot of positivity and community. Um, and it definitely was logistically draining sometimes to do that travel, but it was absolutely emotionally fulfilling and worth it to go into those spaces and connect with these people who, whether they're the booksellers and the store owners who are working so hard to make these spaces for the genre and its success. And then just to connect with readers who love the genre and spend so much of their emotional and creative energy supporting it and like bookstagram and TikTok and on their blogs. Like it's, it's great to connect with people who are putting their time and intention into something that I put a lot of my time and intention to, you know, with romance. <laughs> so, yeah. What, what has been the most kind of memorable moments of your career because you've had you know some really cool things happen you know like I said you the Bergman series is being re-released through Berkeley you know that's coming up all of these wonderful things that have happened you know what what do you look back on now and go that was pretty freaking amazing that that happened I mean I think I've because I'm such a no expectations, no disappointment girly. And yes, I am working on this with my therapist that, you know, when I <laughs> limit my capacity to hope, I limit my capacity to experience joy, you know, and, but I'm working on that. All that to say, I've really genuinely been surprised often when good things have come and I've, they've been pretty memorable to me, but I think a couple ones actually are from sort of earlier on in my career. One was when I just um, on my own submitted Always Only You, which is the second Bergman book. And the first time I'd written on like an openly autistic character who also had chronic uh, illnesses and joint issues like I have. Um, and I submitted that book for a publisher's weekly review, which is, you know, a trade. It's one of the big trade review places that can get you some really great exposure with librarians and booksellers. And um, it got a starred review and it just a beautifully 
affirming, loving review that really saw my characters, Ren and Frankie. And because Ren is a professional hockey player, but he is the like, antithesis of toxic masculinity. He is the sweetest. He's amazing. Cinnamoniest, rolliest, sweetest guy. And he's um, fantastic. So to be writing a book that um, flipped the trope, you, normally men are grumpy in romance and women are the sunshines because don't get me started on the misogyny and the patriarchal undertones of that. But I'll have to say I wrote a grumpy woman and a sweet guy and I wrote a chronically ill woman and an autistic woman and a man who was sexually inexperienced and insecure and a giant Shakespeare nerd. And it got this really glowing, affirming trade review. Um, and that was that was just a really big moment for me to, it was kind of the first moment where I felt like, wait, I think I can like do this. Like I, okay. I, I cause I'm a person who loves authority. I love, I love industry standards and, and that, to get that outside affirmation, I was like, all right, I'm gonna, this is pretty cool that this happened for this story where I put so much out there and took a big risk and I, and I got that reward. Um, and then another moment was Tally Hibbert, just who I, as you know, I've mentioned, wrote Get a Life, Chloe Brown, which is seriously one of the best romance novels ever written. Um, she just happened to pick up that same book and happened to leave a glowing review of it on Goodreads that I just happened to stumble upon. And I like screeched in my living room. I was like, Tally Hibbert read my book and loved it. Oh my God. Like she recommended it in a Goodreads list. It was it just blew my mind. Um, and like, she didn't like email me and tell me she'd done it. She just like did it. And it was, it was huge. Um, and then, yeah, the same thing, Entertainment Weekly named Always Only You, one of the best books of 2020. And it was, it was just a book that I'd really taken a risk on writing so much of my own personal vulnerabilities. And, um, it was a story that really challenged a lot of what I enjoy let least in romance, which is toxic male characters. And it was challenging that very overtly. Um, and it was a book that talked about celebrating romance novels. And yeah, it was just a lot of that happened at this point that I think I really needed that like belief in myself to kick in to a deeper level and and really commit to the Bergman world and my career. Um, so yeah, those were big moments. And then obviously it was pretty special when I got the book deal for the Wilmots um, to know that like a traditional publisher saw what I'd accomplished on my own and saw this vision I had for telling an inclusive story and a Shakespeare retelling and believed that it could sell in the traditional market. And that was, that was pretty, pretty fantastic. Um, and then I would say, you know, just recently with Better Hate Than Never, it hit the USA Today bestseller list. And that was really cool. Because I just want to be able to tell these stories. And anytime you hit those lists or those milestones, like your publisher pays attention and they support you maybe just a little bit more and they help you in this way a little bit than the way that maybe they did it before. And so it's like, what I will take whatever I can that helps me do as much, have as much to work with to be able to get these stories out there and, and let people feel seen and and to see for people even just to see like hey that's a book about very overtly about a woman with ADHD and a man who has chronic pain chronic migraines and it hit a list and that's like an affirmation for those people too so yeah well we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about better hate than never but I do want to do a quick kind of sidetrack about Talia Hibbert's Brown Sisters trilogy mm -hmm. so I used to like fantasy was my thing and oh. I read a romance book probably five or six years ago that is 
by someone who's fairly well known in the romance world. And I just, I didn't like the style of writing and it just turned me off to romance. And my friend Mila, uh, when I started working at Barnes and Noble, she was like, Megan, you just need to read this book. And she recommended the Brown Sisters trilogy. And I was like, Mila, I don't, I don't like romance. I, I, I have to have romance in my fantasy, but I don't think I'm going to like regular romance. And she's like, would you please just shut up and just read this book? And then if you don't like it, it's fine. Right. And I read it and that trilogy was freaking amazing. And now probably 80% of what I read and what I buy is romance because of that series. It's It's, a fantastic series. Yeah. I mean, Tali Hibbert is she's a genius she's such a good writer like she's on a craft level just gorgeous prose and then also just incredible depths of characterization and deeply emotionally fulfilling character arc like growth arcs it's just every time every book she writes is a banger it's amazing i am she is a queen she is so mila thank you (laughs) (laughs) and if you guys haven't read the series it's Danny Brown, Chloe Brown, and Eve Brown. Um, yeah, there. Yeah, you just look up the Brown Sisters yeah. series, read them all. They're amazing. You'll love them. Highly Thanks. recommend them. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so for Better Hate Than Never, it is also a kind of reimagining of uh, Shakespeare. It's Taming mm-hmm. of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. So, what made you want to go with Taming of the Shrew for this one? I'm interested. Well, uh, I love Ten Things I Hate About You. I mean, it's who so good. Which it's is, so you know, cool. for anyone who's, I love you, but you have to have been under a rock, whoever you are, who hears this and is was, and is like, what is that movie? It is like the iconic um, millennial, like turn of the, it was like, I think it was 99 or 2000. It came out. It's right around is, there. Yeah. And it is a, a very clever examination and retelling of The Taming of the True. Um and it also absolutely launched Julia Stiles' career because up to that point, she wasn't like bubbly enough for a lot of the teen rom-com movies that were being cranked out then. But she finally got to play a girl with RBF, resting face. Um, and it was like, <laughs> they really embraced that about her. And I just, because I am also um, one who always has RBF, gets told like, you'd be prettier if you smiled more um love that thank you for that unsolicited commentary men um but all that to say you know i i watched that film and i just felt so seen and i loved how badass she was and i just i'm a huge shakespeare nerd and i'm i tackled it because two things one i am often in no always in my romance writing finding some way to fight with patriarchal culture and messaging and toxic masculinity and misogyny and internalized misogyny because it's terrible for all of us it's terrible for whatever your gender identity is it's terrible for whatever your sexual orientation is because it's all about power and control instead of love and trust and intimacy um it is it is not our liberation and so i'm always trying to reach into ways I can into my characters and my storytelling to to liberate my characters to challenge how they lean into perhaps these messages to protect themselves or how to examine how they've been hurt by them um and so taming of the shrew is obviously a place where it's a very sexist on the surface level very sexist misogynistic play to the point that a lot of critics all critics basically of Shakespeare are like 
or scholars of Shakespeare, like, what was he doing? This is the guy who wrote Portia, who wrote Beatrice, who wrote Hermione, like all these really strong, smart, clever, tough, and also emotional and soft, complex, nuanced women. And then he writes this woman bashing play. And to uh, my, to get nerdy for a minute, my, my thought is that he was feeling particularly salty and sarcastic and like you guys are all dweebs and I am going to just dance storytelling and sarcastic circles around you and you're gonna laugh at this but I'm laughing at you because y'all are pigs and so I think why I think that basically why I think he wrote what is on the surface level an incredibly misogynistic play that is actually deeply laughing at that and poking fun at it constantly why i think that is because um first of all kate is so smart and sharp on page as a character she's just like she's constant and she's just relentlessly fighting for her space she's taking up space in a radical way she is she is placing herself as someone worthy of time and empowerment as a character and then at the end she has this whole ridiculous speech about how it's like patriarchy's idea for women back then 101 women should be meek women should be quiet they should be the helpers they should do they should be listening everything should be about their husband and it's this whole diatribe about that but it's the longest speech in the whole play she holds everyone captive to her voice even though she's saying these things that completely subvert her power and her presence and the time she's taking to talk. So I think Shakespeare was just in a mood when he wrote that one. And so I wanted to bring to the surface level what I feel like he left as subtext in the play and tell a story about a woman who has felt like she's been perceived as a shrew a lot and has this idea that the guy who she can't stand because he makes her feel that way and she feels like that's how she he sees her um is she's going to get to say her piece and say she's felt that way and ex and examine allow us to examine like the hurt and the vulnerability that women who use their voices and speak up and take up space and have strong convictions often can feel and to show what i think people should do when they've hurt and gotten that wrong um which is to epically grovel <laughs> and show how they've grown and how they've <laughs> how they've learned and um and I wanted to to make it a, a really hopeful and healing love story about how risky it can feel to be honest about how you've been hurt how scary it can be to admit how deeply you care and to not lean on these really regressive patterns that um, protect yourself and 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 hurt others in the process the way Christopher does yeah, and just to show that it takes bravery for Kate to open herself up after she's been hurt. And it takes bravery for Christopher to lay aside his coping mechanisms. And it's really beautiful to see two people choose to be honest with each other and work really hard to communicate well and trust each other and forgive each other and, and fall in love. I will I say that the way once Christopher realizes that what he's done has hurt her, you know, and made her feel a certain way i will say the way that he handles it and like you said the way he starts communicating and grovels i guess you could say it oh my god it was so refreshing to read a character like that where he 
he realized what he did was wrong and why it came off the way it did and why it was wrong for him to do that, even if he didn't realize it when it was happening. Because like you said, that was his coping coping mechanism and whatnot. And it was, it's just, it's such a freaking good book. It's honestly like on so many different facets, this book is, it's freaking amazing. And saying that, the third sister's book has been confirmed by Berkeley, which I'm so freaking excited about. So where are you kind of in that process? I know Better Hate Than Never was just released, but I got to know because I'm obsessed with this series. Well, I can't say too, too, too much. No, but... Don't get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So it's the the last sister standing. It's Juliet's book. Um, and her first, the first chapter of her book is in the back of Better Hate Than Never. So you get a little sneak peek at, uh, at her and her love interest. And I, I've definitely had to take breaks from writing that one just because I really want to I want to pour a lot of like joy and true like energy into this book and it's definitely hard to draft when you when you're juggling so much on like the publicity side of another book or like you're in that season you know where it's like right before the better hate never published you're getting tagged in reviews and it just it puts you in your head in a way that I don't like to be when I write like I just want to be immersed in my story world so I'm actually looking really forward to I've you know I've a good bit of it done but um, I have and I have it all figured out. But um, just really being able to finish writing the rest of it here um this month, honestly, and it's nice because I'm like I'm out of the publicity, the the intense publicity time with Better Hate Than Never, and I just get to like kind of tune tune out a bit and just be really s- soaked up in their world. But um, I will I will say that it's. it's so hard to describe like the book is very much in keeping with the vibes of the first two books but I think there's a bit more I think like the softness in some ways is dialed up and the yearning is dialed up there's a lot of mutual um pining and and fears and um just really intense chemistry which I feel like Kate and Christopher have really intense chemistry but it's also like borderline hostile half of the book but these two are just like you want to like wrap them up in a blanket and just like and cuddle them but you also be like guys just kiss already they're just do it already yeah it's it's I don't know it's like soft and horny this book I don't know it's it's good I'm having fun and I I oh my god I think it'll be a really I hope it'll be a very satisfying conclusion to the series for people um, if I'm, if we'll, see, we'll see all the ensemble cast again and the other sisters and their partners. So, yeah. If I am still a bookseller when this third one comes out, I'm going to be like, Chloe told me herself that this book is soft and horny. And that's just how I'm going to describe it. And that's how I'm going to pitch it to readers. That's fantastic. Lots that's of awesome. People, lots of desperate, desperate longing. Well, one thing I did want to ask, because you have written so many books, there were seven in the Bergman uh, brother series you know you've written ones before and then the trilogy here how has your writing and your storytelling developed and changed from kind of when you first started writing to now well you know as I've mentioned before like I definitely at first had to re- had to develop like a process for really involving authenticity sources and you know feedback in my drafting process um and that's that's just a staple of my writing now so that's definitely something that grew for me um 
but just in general in terms of like craft um there's also like language just like words that are couched in like ableism and um heteronormativity that I've definitely moved away from as my storytelling has developed just because I again I just want my books part of it's been like my own awakening as a human being just learning these things but it's also like an intention to really make stories where you know people feel like they can they can belong and identify and connect and without those those words and paradigms coming in and closing off that story for them you know what I mean so that's definitely shifted for me but just in in general in my storytelling I just hope that I've gotten better at um telling stories where the voice feels engaging um and makes you kind of forget your reading um where my pacing and my sentence structure is something that feels smart and witty and um and compelling and I just I want to just keep growing in that and my hope is and my effort with each book has been to be okay how can I get better at something here how can I become more polished in this way how can I refine how can I close the gap between my intent and what I what I create um and hopefully reach my reader with but um I always I think what I'm telling myself I I don't think I need to necessarily get better at but just keep exploring different ways to do is to really dig into the emotions and the backstories and the growth of my characters like I think it's always something I've really prioritized in my storytelling but I just want to keep exploring new and dynamic and engaging ways to do that so hopefully I will I will grow in my breadth and, and capacity for that continue to do so as I write I love that. Okay. So now it's time to transition to rapid fire questions. Okay. They don't need to be, the answers don't need to be rapid. I just, it's just easier for me to say that than end of interview questions. Okay. <laughs> so what is your favorite genre to read? Is it romance? Yeah. Historical romance, probably. Okay. Now, if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? I don't know. I've, I've kind of written all the ones that I want to. I'm like starting to explore some ones that I didn't know that I wanted to write and considering them for future pro projects. So I don't want to give anything away. Yeah, don't give them away. <laughs> so what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list this month? Um, I am. That's a great question. This, Whenever this happens, I always completely blank on what I've been reading. Oh, I got back into Karen Slaughter's Will Trent series. Those are like crime thriller, like crime procedurals, thrillers. They're just, she's just a very good writer. So I just really like paying attention to um, her balance of like show and tell and like dialogue and exposition. She's just a very great writer. So I always enjoy that. I keep checking NetGalley every day because I desperately want the next book in Sangu Mandana's world that began with the very secret society of irregular witches because I'm obsessed with that book um so really really looking for that next installment um I think it's a magical in it's like the magical innkeeper to mischief or something um but yeah Sangu Mandana anything she writes I just adore so I'm really really looking forward to that I'm trying to think what else that's that's all my brain seems to recall right now which is sad oh yeah the um I want to read the second in uh Adriana Herrera's Las Leonas series, which is historical romance about 
um, heiresses from Dominicana back then. So it's just a really refreshing, like diverse, wonderful exploration of historical romance rather than what is typical, which is just, you know, white Regency England. So um, I really loved the first one, the Caribbean arrests in Paris. So I'm looking forward to the next one and bonus it's sapphic. So that's going to be great. Ooh, very nice. Okay. So what is the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received in regards to your writing? I think the one that started it, which is to, you know, write the book that you want to read. If there's that story that you're aching to encounter, like that means it's in your heart. So, so make it happen. Thank you, Toni Morrison. <laughs> Thank you, Toni Morrison, whose first name is actually Chloe. Really? Indeed. I did not know that. That's that's a good piece of little uh, trivia. Trivia. Yeah, I like that. Okay. So if you weren't an author, what do you think you would be doing for work? If you could do anything in the world besides being a writer, what would you do? Uh, I would, <laughs> I don't know. I would probably really enjoy having like running a, a a little farm, a little farm homestead. Just like, I love working with my hands. It's hard sometimes because my hands don't always cooperate, but I love like, I love taking care of plants. I love like cooking with really local yummy ingredients. Like I get, you know, my CSA um, local co-op food co-op delivery. And it's just in this connection to your food from a place close to you and like the the land that you live on. And just, I would, I would love, it would be an incredibly privileged existence to be able to, you know, have that time to um, just live that sort of simple simple existence and I would probably want to teach teach a class here or there like something related to literature literacy yeah well if you ever teach like a Shakespeare class let me know and I'll sign up (laughs) I'll do it remotely (laughs) so if you could invite any person over for dinner either dead or alive who would you invite and why gosh that's so tough I mean so many I'm so fascinated by fact that you know history tells these very angled stories of people um we have to just trust what people say but we can never really know people from the past because it's always a story being told about them um but I I'll I'll cheat and say a couple honestly like I would I would love to talk with Jane Austen and pick her brain um Oscar Wilde um who else man that's tricky. Tony Morrison too. Yeah. We would have, we would have some, I think some good conversation over dinner. Now, would you ever invite Shakespeare over? Yeah, I probably would. I mean, <laughs> but I feel like, you know what? He would just be evasive. I couldn't get a straight answer out of him. Maybe he would just be like making up words and like dancing circles around me intellectually. And I would just end up being really annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that answer. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Now, if you could invite a fictional person over for dinner, either from your books or from someone else's books, who would you invite? And it doesn't even have to be books. It could be from a movie or a TV show. I I honestly would it would be a weird dream to just like have a a big dinner party with all my characters gathered around. It'd be like, I don't know. Maybe what people who've had a bunch of kids feel like at Christmas time when they're all grown up and they have them home with all their partners and it's just pure chaos. 
I guess. Yeah, big, a big, all Chloe's characters gathered around the big long table. I like it. Now, where is a place that you haven't visited on a tour yet that you would like to, either domestically or internationally? Oh, well, I would definitely love to get over to the UK. Um, I love my publishing teams in the UK. They're really great. And I'd love to just get to visit them and meet some readers. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I spent my younger childhood actually in the Midwest, like in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, but I haven't otherwise been there in a long time. So I don't know, just, just stopping places in the country where it's a good opportunity to connect with, with readers and engage. So, but I don't have any concrete, concrete goals, you know. Now, last question. What is currently bringing you joy? just in the wake of being very busy leading up to this book's publication and just all the work I did at the first half of the year with the republication of the Bergmans and getting all that ready um just being present to my kids to my kitty cats (laughs) to myself in a way that when you're so busy it's really hard to and just kind of taking an inventory. I'm like this normally once the weather gets cooler and it feels better to stay inside and be bundled up and have a fire going and a cup of tea and a cat in my lap. It's just to reflect and take stock and um and then process that and then set some intentions for how to move forward in a way that's that's healthy and uh, in general you know positive for me. So just yeah. It's bringing me joy to just be present and mindful and and here and in the here and now. I do want to ask, there's been a kitty cat on your lap for a while. They look very comfortable and they're very lovely. What's your kitty cat's name? So the one on my lap right now is Serafina, who is named for The Raycast, which is a fabulous book by Scarlett Peckham. It is a historical romance. And the heroine Serafina is loosely based on Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, and it's just a really powerful commentary on the gendered double standard of the rake versus the rake s. And so that's Serafina. And then Sebastian, who is more um, shy and because he's hearing other voices is not around. He is named for Sebastian Lord St. Vincent from Devil's Devil in Winter by Lisa Claypus, which is an all-time favorite. Um, and nice. the mother and sister, they're, they're cuties. And they definitely inspired in the third Bourbon book, Freya and Aiden have two dark gray, like tabby, tabby brother and sister horseradish and pickles. And these two inspired them. I did want to ask, what was the name of the book that Serafina was named after? The Raykes, R-A-K-E-S-S. So okay. like, you know, the, the feminine, the feminizing of the word rake, the Raykes. And that's okay. by Scarlett Peckham. It does have a good number of content warnings. So for anyone listening, make sure you check those out. And I believe Scarlet lists them pretty comprehensively at the beginning of her book, but also good reads or story graph. It's a good place to go and check that out. But um, yeah, that book wrecked me and put me back together. Um, it's it's really emotional. It was amazing. Well, thank you so much, Chloe, for being here. Thank you. Apparently, I just part of me wanted you on here so I could just cry in front of you and tell you again how much I love your stuff I promise I don't really cry when I read books very often but for whatever reason your books they just they hit something inside of me and just thank you 
for writing these kinds of books that people can see themselves in where, like I mentioned before, where they read something for the first time and go, I'm not alone. You know, this, there's this, that's not something that's wrong with me. You know, I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm not imagining this stuff. Um, But thank you. And I honestly, I cannot wait to see your very long career happen and just see all the incredible stuff that you put out. So thank you so much for being here. It was an honor. Thank you. It was an honor to be here too. I really, really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to stay up to date on episodes and announcements, please subscribe or follow me at The Real Bookish Writer or at The Well-Read Podcast on Instagram. Thank you for listening and have a magical day. See you next week.